Thank you, guys. Good morning. My name is Ernie Wagner. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. First through third graders, head on down. Um, if you are new and I haven't had the privilege to meet you, would love to, one, do so, two, make sure you get a gift, and three, there's a card inside that gift. would love for you to fill out so I can connect with you this week. would love to make that happen. Uh, man, January started out with a bang. We went first from uh, Omicron, changing things up for our, uh, our gatherings. We used to just do one, and then Omicron has allowed us to do two now, which is cool. So our 9 a.m. is kind of just a bit more normal. We have Sojourn Kids, and 11, we try to social distance a bit more for those where that applies to. Um, and then we had a wicked storm last week. Man, that snow was wild. Any, anybody make a snowman? Nobody. <laughs> Now I'm glad we canceled our second gathering, so that was cool. Um, and appreciate the grace as we navigate through these curveballs. Um, I got three quick housekeeping things just to make mention of. Um, the first is uh, we don't do membership here. We do a thing called partnership. And so partnership for us is a desire to, to know who's a part of our community. We want to be able to shepherd and care for those in our community in a kind of a day and an age where uh, there's kind of a buffet version of Christianity and buffet version of church. We want to kind of know who is, who is in our community so we can make sure we care well. So if you go to sojourn.org, sojournonline.org slash partnership. Um, if you've come through Sojourn Connect and life just got busy and you forgot to fill this out, we'd love to just know uh, who's a part of our community. So to fill that out, if uh, look, go to that URL and, and fill the information there. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about Sojourn in March, we're going to have a Sojourn Connect um, for you to know a bit more about who we are. That's the first thing I got. The second thing is... Um, these wonderful TVs are connected to a wonderful computer in the back, which is connected to a, a visual side of things that we do for slides and things like that. And our, our visual team is a little bit lean right now. Uh, and so if you're like, man, tech savvy or not, you have a finger that can press a button, uh, we would love for you to help us out with that. And so if you email Trevor at Sojourn.online, I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying that. Um, Sojourn Online, that's actually not the full, it's not Sojourn Online, it's Sojourn. So if you email that email address, it's going to go to nobody. Um, and so Trevor at SojournOnline.org, uh, let them know that you're interested in serving once a month, um, and we'll throw you back there and train you, and you'll have a grand old time. So we have some visual needs. So first is partnership, second is the visual thing, and then the third is um, today after our second gathering, we have a, a safety training workshop for our Sojourn Kids volunteers, but also anybody within our community. There's going to be lunch provided, and just want to remind you that it will happen after our second gathering um, today. All right? Wow. I've, I typically have one person that says, yeah, but, but we're here, and we're starting Revelation, so I'm a little nervous on a lot of fronts this morning. We are starting a 12-week series on the book of Revelation. Who's excited about our series on the book of Revelation this morning? There we go. There are my people. That's what I'm talking about. So um, this is probably the most, um, maybe outside of the Song of Solomon, um, the, one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. I mean, I mean misunderstood. Historically, Martin Luther wanted to punt it out of the canon. Um, historically, John Calvin didn't write a commentary on it. And then more recently, man, Left Behind jacked this book up. And so if your theology around the book of Revelation came from Tim LaHaye in uh, the Left Behind series, I'm going to disappoint you a lot over these next 12 weeks. Um, we're going to try to lean into what the Bible says about this, though it has been misunderstood. Um, it's been misunderstood, yet we need it. 
We need this book. This book is a lifeline for the first century church who first heard it. And man, we need it in the 21st century. And so um, you got these cards. You might be sitting on one right now. That's why you're uncomfortable. So move and then you pick it up. Um, and there's uh, the, how we're going to navigate through this series over the next 12 weeks. And we want to invite you to read along with us. Um, I'm not going to be able to cover every single thing. This is more of a survey than an in-depth study. Uh, and so I would invite you to read along with us. So you'll know where we're going on Sunday because it's here. You can make this a part of kind of a, you know, um, what do they call those things? A bookmark uh, in your Bible. And uh, just read along with us over the next 12 weeks. And let's get into the book of Revelation together. We want to allow this to become a framework for us. Um, if you go to sojournonline.org slash revelation, uh, that might be up there as well, but it's going to give you a, a bit more clarity on some resources that we have. So the Bible Project we love um, is a resource that's going to kind of help guide, like, what is happening? Who is this dragon? Why are these people dying and coming back to life? What is going on? And so if you go to this, uh, this URL, sojournonline.org slash revelation, you'll be able to find out a bit more about some of the resources to help guide you. Cool? All right. The book of Revelation. It's, it's, not, it's not Kroger's. It's not Chipotle. And it's not Revelations. Okay? So it's the book of Revelation. So it's no S. Keep the S somewhere else. And so it's one revelation that we dive into. And again, like I said, this book is a gift. It's, it's filled with imagery and it's designed to inject courage into the people of God. This book is designed for us to produce and inject courage to us. We need courage. We need perspective. We, re- we need to remember why we are here. You know, in the first century, they needed a type of courage that we're going to dive into in, in the next several mer- minutes. But we need a kind of courage as well today. The bo- book of Revelation, its, its purpose is to infuse courage to us You know, what if we believe that we are actually a part of a cosmic story and it actually did something to our soul and changed how we lived? What if we believed that the unshakable kingdom that's in this book is real and alive and there's a king who exists and he will return to ransom his people? What if we really believed that? What if this book infused courage into our souls to live for the lamb who is slain? What if we recognize what we were made for and that we were made for this moment to push back darkness and to live for this humble king? What if the throne that is central to this book became central to our lives? And it's designed to bring courage to us. And so we're going to be in an introduction today. This is going to give a little bit of a scaffolding for us so that we can actually move through the next 11 weeks after this one. And so we're going to be in the first nine verses this morning. Let's read together. John writes and says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of God of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we navigate through this introduction and this series that you would inject courage into our hearts. You know where we are. You know what needs we have. And above all, Lord, I pray you'd awaken our lives to live for and follow you and your kingdom. Draw near to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are gentle and lowly and you're kind and compassionate towards us. Let us know it a bit more today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get this introduction. We meet this guy named John. John was the youngest disciple of Jesus' disciples. And so he's probably in his 80s at this point. He's in prison on Patmos. This, the times here that we're reading about are wild of what's happening in this time. They're wild times, not our soft wild times where some places make you wear masks, okay? This is like wild times, like real tyranny that's happening here. Just 30 years prior to the writing of this book, these churches were experiencing the horror of Emperor Nero. So in AD 64, this fire took place throughout Rome, and Nero blamed it all on the Christians, And they said it was the Christian's fault for why this fire took place. And in return, crazy persecution took over Rome during that time. They were tortured, many Christians were, and killed, some burned alive. History would say that Peter and Paul were of that group that died during this time. And John is in prison in light of this crazy persecution that's happening in this time. There's a little island. Um, What's the one that's... uh, just off San Francisco, I forgot it. Thank you, Alcatraz. It's like Alcatraz. It's this place where prisoners go and they stay and they die. Patmos was the OG of Alcatraz, okay? So we get this introduction in this book and the first five, le- five words mean a lot to us as we navigate to, uh, through this book over the next 12 weeks. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is this revelation about? It's about Jesus So if you read through this book and you haven't learned more about Jesus, you've missed the point of this book. It's about the revelation of Jesus. Fundamentally, it's about worship to Jesus and following Jesus and learning how this thing all ends and where it's going and so forth and so so on. So to read this book responsibly, we must see that it's about Jesus. If you come out of reading Revelation and this isn't what you took away, you missed it. There may be more, but there is not Less. And so this morning, I want to introduce this book by considering what it is so that we know what it's not. It's very easy to kind of navigate, try to figure out, like, what is this book all about? So I'm going to give you four things to help us understand as we move forward what this book is so that you know what it's not. This will become a, a guide for us as we move forward. So what is Revelation? First, it's a letter. The book of Revelation is a letter. 
John writes this letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. So that'd be northwest of Israel. There's these seven churches that existed that took, that existed because Paul and his crew spread the gospel all over Asia Minor. And so 30, 40, 50 years later, these churches are now established, and John is now writing to these churches in Asia Minor. You can see them on the map here. Uh, so Turkey's here. If you know nothing about geography, then just... just hold. Um, but on the western side of Turkey, these red dots are the seven churches that Paul, or not Paul, that John is writing to. So it's written to a specific group of people in a specific time with specific issues happening. So Nero was the emperor, but 30 years later, Domitian became the emperor. And Domitian is the guy who was emperor during this time. And he continued the, the path of persecution that was running rampant. And so this letter is written to men and women, and teenagers. It's written to real people like you and me in the first century. And they, they were experiencing this intense persecution. They were feeling the, the pain of tribulation and the trials of what it looked like to follow Jesus in a really difficult time. You know, we aren't experiencing persecution like this in the 21st century. But Domitian he was, he was pushing down upon the Christians. He was forcing worship to happen. He was forcing Christians to worship him. And we see that John, he writes to bring courage. He writes to bring hope. He's compelling people to recenter their lives upon God. So because it's a letter, this book can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. This is like super important when we read the book of Revelation. It can't mean something to us that it didn't first mean to them because he was writing to people in the first century. So locusts aren't helicopters as we read through it. Um, President Obama or President Trump, regardless of where you stand, neither of them are the Antichrist. America isn't the coming kingdom. The vaccine isn't the mark of the beast. Like these are things that people think. You, you Google it, man. They're like all over the place. It's wild how people take what is written in the book of Revelation and try to modernize it. What it didn't mean to the first century, it's not going to mean to uh, sidebar. If you're concerned about being tracked by a vaccine, let's just be a little more honest for a second. This phone, the phone's not in my pocket. That's something else. But man, your phone is tracking you far more than any vaccine ever will. So if you're concerned, look to your phone first. But again, it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. We'll come back to that later. But the first, Revelation, it's a letter to people. Second, Revelation is apocalypse. It's an apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means revelation or unveiling. So this book is a revelation or it's unveiling something. It does not mean, apocalypse does not mean end of the world. So that's how you interpret what this means, and you're going to read all of this through that lens. But apocalypse means unveiling or revelation. It's unveiling this cosmic war of these two entities colliding together and the victory of the one who is supreme over everything else. So the way it unveils is counter to our enlightened mind. So in the 18th century, there's a guy named John Locke. And he and his crew created this new world of what it looks like to think rationally and think with reason. So post-enlightenment, we are now rational beings, for better or worse. And this is how we are taught to think. 
So because we're products of the Enlightenment, we are fact-heavy, and our imagination has potentially been stifled. So because we're products of the Enlightenment, um, that's how we operate and think. So this book is quite confusing for fact-first folks. This book has, has been misinterpreted because we struggle with books that are heavy on imagination. So we like Romans because of this. Like, tell me what to believe, tell me what to do, and I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to do it. But when we get to a book like this that kind of blows that out of the water, we don't know what to do, and we end up misunderstanding it. But this book, it shares images, not facts. It's telling a story. It's not linear in the way other books are. So you want to understand this book if you're looking for it to be linear. But it invites you to use a, a different part of your brain and it invites you to see things in a different lens. And in this book, John sees a series of windows. You'll read through it and it says, and then I looked. And then he looks. And then it says, and then I looked. And then he looks. And then he looks a different way. And so it's not this linear, it's just random. He's seeing these different images and it's causing him to see what's happening, a picture of what's taking place. Over and over again, he says that. So we're reading this story, this is apocalypse, this is epic story that's using imagery to awaken something within inside of our souls. And so you see colors and numbers that have meaning. You see animals representing people. You see natural phenomena uh, representing events. See, what this ap- apocalyptic book is unveiling is something that we need. Imagery can do something that reason cannot Let me allow Daryl Johnston to clarify. So he says this, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deep recesses of our being. This is happening when we get to this book. That it's using imagination to pull something out, to invite us into something beautiful and profound. Let me try to flesh it out practically. So you have, I'm going to give two examples of the same story. We talked about this during Advent a little bit. But in Luke chapter 2, we see a story about the birth narrative of Jesus. Let me read it to you. In Luke 2, 1 through 6, this is facts. Enlightened, Enlightened people love this. Post-John Locke loved this. And so it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was a governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. This is narrative. It's giving us some facts of what happened. So we hear there's an emperor. We hear there's a census. We hear there's travel. And then there's a birth. Got it. Boom, bang, bong. Clear. And so you then fast forward to the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, we hear a very similar story of what takes place. So in Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, it says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, 
and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So we see a woman who gave birth. We see a dragon seeking to devour her son and his people. We see the son will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and then he's caught up into heaven. See, the same story is taking place. One is more using facts, and one's using more of the imagination. And that's what John is trying to do here. What stirs us? It's that, it's that imagery that awakens something within us that causes us to realize that we're part of something much bigger in history. See, it's this type of apocalyptic language that can awaken us to the story that we're a part of. And that's what John's trying to do in this apocalypse book. See, this type of book charges us and provokes us. It's great. Ain't no thing. This type of book charges us and provokes us. It's this imagery that, that uh, hooks our hearts and our imagination. Man, we have plenty of Bibles in the West. But I would say that the church is getting whooped right now. I would say that, man, you look at, I, I don't know if we could stand in the first century if politics and masks are unraveling the church. And we look at this moment, though, and we see this invitation for us to be caught up with something higher. You know what we need more of? We need more than just facts. We need our emotions and our, our, the, the core of our soul to be caught up with something higher, that we would be invited into something greater, that we would not settle for just a puny view of this life. And Revelation invites us to that. So in it being an apocalypse is that it's inviting us into something more, into something greater, shaking off the dust, the rust that's on our souls, and awakening us to something afresh. And what happens is there, there is a real enemy trying to destroy and deceive and distract us from Jesus and his kingdom. And if you don't get that, that there's a real enemy out there to destroy you, destroy you and your family and your church and your community and this and everything else, then you'll end up labeling the enemy being the wrong thing. You'll end up calling all kinds of things the enemy and we'll miss it. Paul says, I don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Like that's the battle and, and the revelation reminds us there's something bigger happening something more majestic taking place. And what ends up happening is we settle for battling against flesh and blood and we get our teeth kicked in. The church is getting its teeth kicked in. And we need to be awakened afresh to something happening much greater and much more beautiful that we could stand with courage and we could actually push back darkness and we could engage in justice and we could care for the hurting and we'd actually be Jesus to this world. The book of Revelation invites us to that. And the devil is terrified of the people of Jesus awakening again, waking up. So this is a letter. This is an apocalypse, but it's also a prophecy. 
It's a prophecy. A prophecy, uh, when you think of prophecy, you think of uh, the end of the age and, and what kind of future stuff. And that's not the point of what a prophecy is. I don't think I'll have this quote up here, but one of the scholars I've been reading, he says, instead, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God and their concrete historical situation. So prophecy is designed to produce uh, comfort and it's to challenge. And so when you read through this book, at times you'll find comfort and a comfort, uh, at times you'll find uh, yourself being challenged. So it's a prophetic book. It's designed to bring comfort and conviction and courage. It's similar to the prophets in the Old Testament. When you read those, it's similar in that way. And it's using imagery to remind us of what we're called to as the people of God. So it's a letter, it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, all addressing seven churches in the Roman province of, of Asia. And last but not least, it is a liturgy for worship. It is a letter. It is an apocalypse. It is a prophecy. But man, it is also a liturgy for worship. To these seven churches, it was designed to uh, cause worship to explode within their hearts. You know what caused you to last through difficult times? Affection, adoration to Jesus. You know what will sustain you through difficulty and troubles and trials? It's worship. You know what will give you courage in the face of hardship? It's worship. It's remembering who Jesus is. See, worship is a word derived from the old English that means worthship or worthiness. And there's no New Testament book uh, that does more poetically and powerfully to awaken our hearts in worship to God the Creator and His Son Jesus the Redeemer. This is the central and centering vision of the book of Revelation. This profound, powerful throne in heaven. And this lamb who is slain at his right hand. And everything is centered around this throne. And it's here that we find courage. It's here that we find peace. It's here that we find comfort. It's here that causes us to remember that we're a part of a bigger story than we actually might think that we are. And this is that sacred space that reminds us of reality. It reminds you of your true north, this, this call to worship. It's a call to worship the one true God and to uh, call to forsake all the lesser kingdoms that our hearts are gravitating towards. See, worship is so important in the book of Revelation. So much so, I'm going to read the six hymns that we read throughout the book of Revelation. So we read the first one in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says, it says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. The next one's in Revelation 5. Oh, no, not done yet. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then in Revelation 5, we see the second hymn 
It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then Revelation 5.13, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Then Revelation 7, we read this. Amen. Blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then Revelation 11 we read, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding uh, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then lastly, Revelation 15, great and amazing are your deeds, the Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And just tethered, layered, like a thread throughout the book of Revelation is this reminder. Get your eyes up. Get your eyes up. Lift your eyes up. There's eight doxologies on top of these six, and I'm not going to read all the doxologies, of a reminder of worship. There's this over and over and over again. What's the point? What's John trying to do? Let's figure out who the Antichrist is. Like, that's not the point. The point is, let's lift our eyes up. Let's remember where this is going. Let's remember the supreme one and the lamb who was slain who, to pay for our sin and to rescue us and invite us into his family. Let's remember what this is all about. Man, we come every week. I get it. We settle week in and week out. I settle week in and week out for a puny version of life. And we come here to remember there's something bigger going on. There's something more beautiful happening. There's a God who is gracious, who is pursuing you in your mess. And he knows it all, and he's not afraid of it, and he loves you enough to pursue you and chase you down. He loves your righteousness enough that he's going to pursue you and rescue your heart from it. We're remembering that there's a story that God is weaving into this tapestry of humanity and that we're a part of it. And we gather to remember that. Friends, if this doesn't lead us to worship, we've missed it. The point is to lift our eyes up and draw our affection and adoration to Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So we enter this prologue, and, and right out of the gate, we see worship taking place even in Revelation 1. So what is Revelation? It's a letter. It's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy. And it's a liturgy for worship. And I believe that the church was made for moments like this. And we are becoming more, as the people of God, becoming more misunderstood with social media and everything else taking place. We, there's confusion about everything taking place right now. What is true? What isn't true? As we become more and more marginalized, I believe that God is calling us to be a distinct people that are tethered to Jesus, not tethered to a party, 
but tethered to Jesus and allowing him to shape who we are and how we live. We're part of this wonderful redemptive story. We gather to remember it. It's in this wonderful letter and apocalypse and prophecy and liturgy for worship that compels us into something more grand, more wonderful, more true. You know, we can settle for something inferior or we can give ourselves to what God has for us. And so friends, this is where we're going. We're going to go and pursue Revelation as a letter, as an apocalypse, as a prophecy, and as a liturgy for worship. So as we land, I want to consider this first doxology in Revelation 1. We've just read it a few minutes ago, and it says this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And this is the story. God has demonstrated his love for us. To him who loves us. I don't know where you are. I don't know what kind of mess you find yourself in. But I can tell you that God loves you. I can tell you that he cares for you. I can tell you he sees your warts and your mess. And it's not too much for him. To him who loves us. Not just the world, but to him who loves you. It's his kindness and his love that leads us to be drawn towards him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sin. It's not just a one and done, you get baptized, you're not freed from your sin. Man, it's a journey. We're constantly, yes, the power of sin has been done away, but the presence of sin is active in our lives. And to remember, because he's loved us, he's freed us from our sin. I mean, you can let go of the sin that you're clinging to even in this moment, and you can lay it at the feet of Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, to him who loved us and freed us of our sins. He's made us a kingdom. I mean, you're a part of a kingdom. You're a part of something that's a tapestry, the story of what God is doing. You are a part of that here and now, even in your brokenness. To him who loves us. And freed us from our sins by his blood. He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Now, my prayer for us as we navigate through these next several weeks is that we would find courage to live for something bigger. We'd find courage to live for something more grand and beautiful. And that would free our hearts from settling for puny pursuits we would give our lives and our hearts with abandonment to this king and his kingdom. Amen.